Well, it is good to have our hearts prepared to come to the hearing of God's Word, and we turn our attention now to Romans chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 16 through 24 this morning, and we're continuing in this series of Israel's hope for restoration. One of the things that saddens me as I think about it is the church that is less than what God would call the church to be. When a church is in rebellion to the truth, when the church does not live up to what God has given it grace to be, brings a burden to my own heart. And one of those areas in which the church has fallen short is regards to its own attitude towards Israel, historically. Think about Scriptures, Jesus reminded us in the Word of God that we are called to love our enemies. Even if somebody has mistreated us, even as somebody has persecuted us, even if somebody has said all kinds of evil things against us, at very minimum we owe them love. Because that's exactly what we received. Romans chapter 5 reminds us that while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. When we were at our worst, when we were in rebellion, when we were hostile to God, God was merciful and kind towards us. As Paul described it in Colossians chapter 1, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. When we were in that state of rebellion, God sought us. So we ought to be the kind of people that demonstrate a love towards others, even those who have made our lives difficult at times. The church hasn't always been this way towards Israel, though. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum has an account, both at their museum and on their website, that tracks the relationship of Christianity to the Jewish people throughout the church age. They record a series of events, and I just wanted to draw your attention to some of these events from their own perspective. At about 300 AD, in the 300s, Ambrose, a bishop in the Christian church, sought to oppose the efforts of Theodosius when Theodosius tried to acknowledge the civil rights of Jews and pagans and others. Ambrose got up and made this argument. He said this, Whom do the Jews have to avenge the synagogue? Christ, whom they have killed? Whom whom they have denied? Or will God the Father avenge them whom they do not acknowledge as Father since they do not acknowledge the Son? Basically, the idea is Israel has rejected the Son, so they have lost the right to turn to the Father because they have also rejected the Father by rejecting the Son. So, basically, why should we give them rights? That was the attitude of the early church towards, at least some in the early church, towards Israel. This continues on and from the next 300 years, from 300 to 600 
This article continues and says, It became fixed in the popular mind the conviction that the Jews had crucified Jesus and that their descendants bore hereditary guilt for the deed because they never repudiated it. They rebelled. They rejected their Messiah, their own people. They rejected their own Messiah. Therefore, they're guilty. And they're continually guilty until they repudiate it. In the correspondence of Gregory I, tells us about Jews, that there was a forced conversion of the Jews. And he, again, sought to give them particular rights under Roman law. And from his letters, this article says, we can learn something about the attitude of Jews during that time. The Jews had been deeply involved in slave trade, and the Jews lived untroubled lives among Christians and in some areas, but also troubled lives among Christians in other areas. This time in which there was an attempt to, again, give the Jewish people some freedoms, there was open hostility and opposition to this. After Gregory's papacy, at the time as the Jews were expanding through Europe, there began to be persecution in Europe and from France under King Dagobert in 626. Is under the Spanish monarchy and with church collusion, when in 694 the Jews were required to choose between baptism and slavery. It says these motives appear to be based on religion, but history has shown that all such expulsions and persecutions are dependent on other factors, such as politics and xenophobia, or even scapegoating. The idea is that the Jews were under judgment because the Jews had rejected their Messiah. They were under judgment and they either needed to repent or they needed to then come under slavery and be punished for their rejection. This was the general idea. In the 700s, from 700 to 1500, this article continues on and demonstrates that the Jews were under, again, a religious minority and says the, a papal record during that time, had a mixed kind of attitude towards the Jews, some giving rights, but some taking them away. But the justification for their persecution was this, the vocabulary of guilt for Jesus' crucifixion and charges of stubbornness and blindness reoccur. Because they would not repent, because they would not embrace, because they would not turn, they were mistreated. This continued on, it tracks this article, tracks the persecution of Jews through Germany, it tracks the, the persecution of Jews during this time. But one particular name that comes to the surface that was interesting was that of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, in his early days, this article says, naively imagined that the Jews would be attracted to his studies and they would flock to his reformed version of the church. And when nothing of the sort happened, he denounced them in a set of pamphlets written in his fury. He had produced an early pamphlet in 1523 entitled, That Christ Was Born a Jew, supporting the Jewish people longing for their restoration and return. When they did not turn, 15 years later, he wrote another pamphlet to this, quote, damned and rejected race, unquote. 
And that pamphlet was entitled Against the Sabbatarians in 1538. And then he wrote another in 1543 entitled On the Jews and Their Lies. The attitude towards this people was to condemn, it was to reject. And in conclusion, this article says this in its concluding notes. It says, The theological anti-Judaism of the church fathers repeated endlessly in medieval and Renaissance Reformation preaching was the great culprit for Jewish persecution. This is in, again, the Holocaust Museum published there in the museum on the website. And in many ways, I think the church cannot avoid the accusation. That's what makes my heart sad. Thinking about this, there is also a folk song entitled The National Brotherhood Week, written by Tom Leher, to which they sing this stanza in the folk song. Oh, the Protestants hate the Catholics, and the Catholics hate the Protestants, and the Hindus hate the Muslims, and everybody hates the Jews. The general attitude was just hatred towards this particular group. Hatred, and thus justified persecution. Hatred, and thus justified evil towards them. But when you come to the book of Romans, and you read through Romans, particularly chapters 9, 10, and 11, where we're at, we see a starkly different perspective. You see a genuine love of the Apostle Paul for his beloved people, and a desire for their repentance and restoration. You see an understanding of God's moving through their midst and and putting it into perspective what is taking place. But particularly right here in these verses, in Romans chapter 11, 16 through 24, Paul rebukes the proud Gentile heart. Paul rebukes the heart that begins to exalt itself when it considers itself more blessed because of God's grace and mercy. God puts us back into perspective in this particular section. And there is a particular vulnerability in the heart of man that when it receives the grace of God, it lifts itself up and exalts itself against others. This is nothing new to us, Gentiles. It certainly occurred in the Jews' life. The Jews hated the Gentiles, were obstinate towards them, They considered Gentiles dogs and outcasts. They were worthless. So the Jews themselves exalted in the grace of God given to them, but now the church is returning in kind. And Paul confronts that in this section of Scripture and confronts the heart that exalts itself in a kind of spiritual pride. We could call this a spiritual pride or a religious pride, basically a pride that comes because of God's favor that comes upon upon a person. Let's just read it, and then we'll begin to walk through our outline in this section. Romans eleven sixteen to 24. Here's what Paul writes. It says, If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. 
But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. His words, this warning here, this exhortation of the Apostle Paul, if the church had historically listened to it, might have tempered their response in many different ways towards the Jewish people over the years. What Paul gives us in this section of scripture are three evidences of spiritual pride. Three ways that we could be able to identify it if it is stirring up within us. And three, I could say, exhortations to stay away from that spiritual pride. Three ways, three evidences in which this pride is manifest. I'll give you the outline and then walk through with you. So you see, first of all, in verses 17 through 20, the proud man boasts in his privileges. In verse 21 and 22, we see the proud man believes there are no consequences. And then in 23 and 24, the proud man believes he is superior. Three evidences of spiritual pride. Now, before we jump into that, notice how Paul sets it up in verse 16. He sets up the The whole explanation from 17 to 24 by verse 16. And he draws out this kind of parallel of small things impacting the bigger things. That's the parallel here in verse 16. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. If the promise is made and the promise is good, then the branches are good. If the small piece of dough is holy, the lump is. The idea here is that in Israel, when a woman would make bread, she would take a small piece of that dough, break it off, and she would take that in as an offering given. And that offering would make the whole lump holy because she offered this up to the Lord. And in that same idea of the small influencing the whole, he then draws this illustration of the root and the branches. Now, before we even get into Verses 17 through 24, there is a very technical question that comes up in the midst of this. And the question is, what or whom is the root? What or whom is the Who is the root? Who is this one that the root is referring to? And some have concluded, well, the root means Jesus. Jesus Christ is the root. After all, as, as John has said in his gospel and, and recorded, That Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And therefore, if Jesus is the vine and we're the branches, Jesus is the root. Except for the fact that John is talking, Jesus is talking in John's gospel about being a vine. And here he's clearly talking about an olive tree. But other than that, it's pretty close that they are, we're talking, you know, plants here. So 
Could be close. But there's another significant problem, and that significant problem, if it is Jesus Christ, you either have elect people who are being cut off, or you have non-elect people who are actually joined to Christ in some mysterious way. Others have said, well, maybe it's not Christ, but it is actually uh, the church. And then this idea, they would say, the church has historically existed. And the church began with the selecting of Israel. And the church is the people of God. And so the Israel was the first church. And then the church age is now, as Gentiles are added, a continuation of the church age. Problem with that particular view is that Paul said the church was a mystery unknown to previous generations. Just read through Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3 and you see that. Plus you have the same dilemma of elect people being cut out or non-elect people being joined to it. So when is the root? Well, I think contextually we could see this by going back to Romans chapter 4. The root is the Abrahamic Promises, the Abrahamic covenant. And that promise, that Abrahamic covenant, is the basis on which Paul makes his argument to defend the gospel in Romans chapter 4. You remember from our time in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham, when he was at a stage late in life, believed upon God, the promises of God, and God granted him favor because of his faith. Abraham is then the father of faith. And Paul makes the point that Abraham, as the father of faith, believed upon God and was justified as, again, as he was justified by faith, and he was, he, this occurred before his circumcision. Notice verse 9 and 10. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And he gives the answer, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. That is, before he kept the law, before he had obeyed anything, according to the law, he believed upon God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, again, was the father of faith. Now, I want to particularly draw your attention down to verse 16. Basically, you can understand this. Abraham had his physical descendants, So all of Israel who came after Abraham were physical descendants to Abraham. But there were also the children of faith that belonged to Abraham. Verse 16 points this out to us. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He points out, Abraham is the father of all those who believe, and he is the father of the physical nation. Abraham is the root. And Paul uses this argument, an explanation of that from chapter 4 to defend his gospel. Now turn back to chapter 11 then. 
So that the root then is the Abrahamic promises. And the joy is this. We Gentiles, we of the church age, we who have been grafted in, share of all of the rich blessings that have been poured out and promised to Abraham and to his descendants. Gentiles who are living outside of the promises have been brought in. The Gentiles who had no hope to the Messiah have been brought in. Israel, who had been promised a Messiah, a coming king who would rule, we know that king to be Jesus. Israel had the promise of forgiveness. We know that forgiveness comes through Christ. Israel was looking for a Messiah who would be the son of David, the son of Abraham. We know that Messiah to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel has then hoped, all the hopes and promises were made to Israel, and we see that those promises were filled in Christ, and we, through Christ, join in to those marvelous promises. Now we've been blessed. Richly blessed by God. We have the forgiveness of sin. We have the hope of resurrection. We have the anticipation of the coming kingdom. We have the hope of a Messiah who's going to come and rule as a king over all. We have all of this hope. But there's a temptation within our own heart with all of that hope and joy to have a kind of spiritual prejudice that Paul confronts. Now notice verses 17 through 24. He confronts this spiritual prejudice. And he confronts three aspects of the religious pride. The first is the proud man boasts in his privileges, verses 17 through 20. Notice just beginning, uh, no, 17 and the beginning of verse 18, what he says. If some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, notice, do not be arrogant towards the branches. Jump down to verse 20, at the end of verse 20. Do not be conceited, but fear. Jump down to verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Notice, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Don't think highly of yourself. Don't be filled with pride. Don't be arrogant. There is a strong warning that Paul gives in this passage. And the question is, why the warning? And the answer is, because we have the tendency in our heart to esteem ourselves great because of the grace of God given to us. Ah, we must have been saved because we were a better people. We must have been saved because we're superior. We must have been saved because God saw something great within us. We are more loved. We are greater. We are more holy. God is rich to us. And on top of that, we have all the spiritual benefits. Again, notice at the end of verse 17. We became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Promises to Abraham that he would be a father of many nations. The promises to him that he would have many descendants. We are part of those promises and we are receiving all the benefits. You've lost it, Israel. It's taken away from you. It's given to us. We're the privileged ones. We're the ones who deserve all of the blessings now. 
This is the general attitude. The rich man, the proud, again, not the rich man, but the religiously proud man who is taking joy in his privileges begins to condemn those who do not have it. I'm saved by God's mercy. You're not. I have greater worth to God. That's why he's keeping me close and burning you up. You're just cork wood to be used for fire. You're nothing to God. We are everything to him. And on and on the attitude goes. So Paul warns in verse 18, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant so as to against those branches. Because of the second half of verse 18, if you are, remember this warning, it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Because God rescued you, you didn't go back and support the promises to Abraham and to Moses and to David and, to, and on. You didn't be the support to them. They are a support to you. So there's an exhortation that, that Paul gives here, and the exhortation is, do not be proud of your grace-given privilege. We see this all the time with those who have received kindness and grace from God to become proud in that. You've seen the man who's been given gifts of speaking then exalt himself in his gifts of speaking, thinking that he gets special privilege because he can speak. Or those who have been given gifts of service, thinking that they are greater in their service. It always gets me when the guy who has the gift of evangelism comes along and has a heart to share the gospel with everybody, condemns others who do not act like he does. I'm thankful you go out and preach the gospel. I'm here to support you in that doing that. But we all have different gifts and different abilities. And I'm not judged by your gifts, and you're not judged by my gifts and my use of them. Spiritually proud man boasts himself in his privilege and uses that privilege as a means to look down upon others. That's what makes them proud. And Paul warns them here, don't become arrogant because you've now received mercy, Gentiles, because you've been brought in, because you're now receiving these benefits. Don't become arrogant towards this people. And he anticipates, verse 19, Paul anticipates their very question because he knows that this is on their heart. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I, so that I might be grafted in. The implied comment after that, doesn't this mean how special I am? I mean, if they were broken off so that I can be brought in, isn't this, doesn't this mean God has some special love for me? I'm so valuable, so meaningful to God, so important to his big plan. I love Paul's response in verse 20. Quite right. Yeah, this is exactly what happened. They were broken off, notice, for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. Let's just remember, he humbles us and reminds us, how did we get here in the first place to be in this position of receiving this marvelous grace and mercy? We got here by faith. We didn't get here by our works. 
We didn't get here because of some promise of good within us. We didn't get here because of some popularity contest. We did not get here from anything within us. We got here because of the grace of God. We believed and we were grafted in. We stand by our faith. And they were cut off because of their unbelief, as verse 20 indicates. They were broken off because they wouldn't believe. Everyone who was in the roots are there because they believed like Abraham believed. He believed God's promises. Leads us to the second point that Paul makes there. The proud man believes there is no consequence for evil. Notice verse 21 and 22. And this is the continuation of Paul's exposition of the comment in verse 19. The comment, you're going to say to me the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And so he further explains the implication to their, uh, to their comment. He says this, For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Take the warning. The proud man won't respond to the warnings. And Paul explains the warning, verse 22. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. There is a warning. Paul warns in two occasions in this particular verse. He will not spare you either. You will be cut off. There's the warning of the proud heart that exalts itself. Be warned. Proud man won't hear the warning. Spiritually proud man resists, continues to operate just as he desires to operate. Because after all, he's too important to be judged. Too significant to the kingdom of God to have any consequences for his actions. Too loved by so many to be under judgment. Too significant into the kingdom work to have to fear having any kind of accountability. Paul destroys that here and reminds them that if you too become conceited, don't become conceited, but fear. Because if he is able to cut off the natural branches, he will not spare you either. I know this is a struggle in many's heart to say, well, what's going on here? Are you elect being cut off? What's taking place? Remember this. What qualified us to stand in these promises? The answer, faith. What does faith do? Well, faith certainly believes the word of God and faith walks in the spirit of God and faith is filled with the, the keeping of God's word because after all, Romans 6 taught us that if we're walking in faith, we are slaves of righteousness. And Romans 8 talked, uh, talk, taught us that we are moved and directed by the spirit. So what's happening here then? If somebody is walking in unbelief, if somebody is rejecting the truth, if somebody is walking in pride, they're persistently walking in unbelief, they would be cut off. A proud man believes there is no consequence to his evil while he lives in sinful unbelief, rebelling against God. 
And this is why, again, the hard heart filled with a spiritual or religious pride exalts itself when it lives in immorality. When the proud heart can say in its own heart, well, this is just messy Christianity. This is that God came to save the messy people, and I'm one of them. While the man justifies his immorality, while he has affairs and gets drunk and says, I'm saved by grace, not by works. And all of that, he lives in unbelief and is proud and is not living under fear because he believes there's no consequence for his evil. It's a proud heart. And Paul has a warning here, and it's, it's interesting here, as in verses 19 through 22, he anticipates that being the response of his audience. You will say to me then, he cut these off for me. Oh, be careful. Be careful that you don't use the grace of God as a license for sin. Be careful that you don't use the mercy of God as freedom to live in rebellion against the living God. Because Jesus also warned on the last day that many will appear to him and say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? Matthew 7 says, verses 21 through 23, and those terrifying words that he says at the end, Depart from me, for I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. So the proud man believes there's no consequence for his evil. And as a result of it, he stubbornly digs in in his own rebellion. In this particular context, the rebellion is the exalting of himself because of the spiritual privilege over Israel. Which leads to the last evidence of a kind of spiritual pride. The proud man believes that he is superior. He believes that he is superior. Verse 23 and verse 24. We can say it like this, the proud man believes that he himself is at the center of God's redemptive work. That all that's taking place, that all that is happening in the gospel and in redemption is about him. That he is the great trophy to give to God. That's the proud man's view in verse 23, 24 draws it out. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those or these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? The Exhortation that Paul is given to them, to the Gentile audience, that this is God's not done yet with his natural branches. It's not done yet with Israel. In fact, it'll be very easy for him to continue on his work with them. Very easy for him to bring them back in because after all, they are the natural branches and they can come right back into this cultivated olive tree because they are the natural branches. How will they be brought back in? Verse 23 tells us, if they do not continue in their unbelief, if they turn, if they believe, they will be brought back in immediately, grafted in. 
For God is able to graft them in, able to restore them immediately. The man who is proud says, ha, God's done with you. You're out of here. No hope for you. God has it all, given it all to me now. All to us. We have it. You've lost it. We are the superior ones. We're the exalted ones. We're the privileged ones. We're the ones who took over because of your failure. We're the ones who deserve this, received all of this because of God's grace. But you've lost it. Makes himself the center and superior focus of God's redemptive work. But again, I point out to you in this context, that has not been Paul's emphasis in this context. Remember back in chapter 11 and verse 12, when Paul says, If their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, notice this, how much more will their fulfillment be? If once they, if they rebelled and we received grace, what happens when they turn and they believe we're going to receive abundant grace? He continues that same idea in verse 15. For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, notice this, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If we receive salvation because of Israel's rejection, we're going to receive resurrection at their repentance. Life from the dead. Oh, God's not done yet with his people. And it's only an arrogant heart that says we're superior and we're the focus. He continues, and we will see this next week, from 25 through 36, and he describes the mystery of God's work to come. So many issues there. It'd be fun to unpack. But one of them that comes out in verse 26, this phrase, so all Israel will be saved. What is the reference? And after the first service, I was cornered. Somebody says, do you really mean to tell me every, all of Israel, all Israel, all physical Jews will be saved and believe at that time? Absolutely. What in the world? How could such a thing happen? Do you not recognize that during that time of their repentance, there's going to be intense persecution and suffering? There's going to be many who will die at the hands of great persecution and suffering so that all who will be left will be the elect, redeemed. We will unpack that mystery next week. But our point right now is this, from verse 16 to 24. We must guard our heart from a kind of pride that believes that we have arrived because of God's great grace and then reject others because they don't have that grace. Spiritual pride causes a kind of blind spot in our heart that we wouldn't exercise the love of God towards others. Spiritual pride consumes others for its own glory, exalting itself and 
and is unloving, unmerciful. It's interesting the, the ways in which people go about calling out pride. And they think, well, pride is, uh, pride is calling out sin. Especially the guy who's walking in this kind of spiritual pride just does not like his sin called out. I say, no, pride is living contrary to the word of God. That's what pride is. Pride isn't calling out evil. Pride is living in contrary to the revealed will of God, which is in his word. That's pride. Someone said, well, no, pride is being clear with God's word. That's what pride is, that you're just definitive. You're too definitive. You're saying it too plainly. That's pride. No, actually, pride is confusing God's message. God is clear because he's able to communicate. He speaks with a perspicuity, with a clarity so that we can understand. God who made language, knows how to use language, is perfect in his communication and communicates in an understandable way. It is not pride to be clear. It is normal because God is clear. Someone might say, well, you know, it's Pride to have confidence in God's word. You can't have, you can't, again, be so definitive and have confidence. No, actually, again, it's pride to deny what he has said. We trust in a God who cannot lie, who has spoken, and we believe it. And it certainly is not pride to call somebody to faith. It's pride to withhold love to someone who has not believed. That is pride. Paul exposes, again, a kind of insidious religious pride that creeps up in our own hearts that believes, because I have received these privileges, I can get away with living contrary to his word. And I would say at that point, then, that is unbelief at its root. And if we lived in that kind of unbelief, the warning that Paul gives here should be our warning. If he didn't spare the natural branches, he wouldn't spare us if we lived in that same unbelief. So we ought not to live in that unbelief towards God and his purposes. And when we come back next week, we start to get then into the divine mystery. What is this all about? Everything that Paul has been working from, from 9, chapter 1, through this point, he gives the answer from 11.25 to verse 32. This is what it's all leading to for the last four months in which you've been sitting through this series. It's all going to finally come to, well, maybe two parts, at least two parts or three parts. It will come to an end eventually. But we will get there to see God's plan and answer all those questions. Who's Israel? What does it mean all Israel be saved? What is God doing in his purposes? Does he have a plan? The answer, as we're seeing, is emphatically yes. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these lessons, these truths. Thank you for the warnings. We come in with a kind of pride of wanting to see all the things you have planned for us and we leave recognizing we don't deserve any of it. We are privileged to be a part of it and rejoice in this marvelous work that you have rescued us and made us partakers of the divine blessings. And we who were without hope have now been given hope and we are seeing 
just as you had promised to Abraham, you are able to fulfill it. And in your marvelous plan, you have in your sovereign purposes even decreed a rebellion of your own chosen nation so that you could bring in the Gentiles and fulfill that very promise you made to Abraham when, he would, when you declared that he would be the father of many nations. Indeed, many have come to saving faith and are coming in, have been made part of your glorious work because of your doing, and we see the riches of your hand on display. And so we pray, Father, as we look at all of this, we pray the heart response would be humility, love, selfless, sacrificial service and care for others, confidence in your message and truth, anticipation for the restoration to come, For indeed, we long greatly for the repentance of your people so that the next blessings, the much more blessings would be poured out upon us and we would see the riches of your grace. Till such time, may we have the same heart attitude that Paul had, desiring all to repent and to believe, knowing that all those who turn to you in faith will not be cast away, and knowing that your rich grace and mercy will be lavished upon them. Feel that time. Protect us from the evil one and protect us from these natural tendencies to drift into stubborn pride and unbelief. And where it is, we are thankful for the ministry of your spirit and your word to bring conviction, to bring understanding, so that we can repent and return. Thankful for your renewed mercies each and every day. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.